Welcome Beyond the Walls with Team World Vision. My name is Chantal Hayes-Randall, the Marketing Engagement Manager for Team World Vision, and I'll be your host this week. For Black History Month, we will be featuring short biographies of important figures in Black history at the beginning of each episode. This week, we are featuring Eugene Bullard, America's first Black fighter pilot, among other things. Eugene Jacques Bullard is considered to be the first African-American military pilot to fly in combat and the only African-American pilot in World War I. Ironically, he never flew for the United States. Born October 9, 1895 in Columbus, Georgia to William Bullard, a former slave, and Josephine Bullard, Eugene's early youth was unhappy. He made several unsuccessful attempts to run away from home, one of which resulted in his being returned home and beaten by his father. In 1906, at the age of 11, Bullard ran away for good, and for the next six years, he wandered the South in search of freedom. In 1912, he stowed away on the Marta Russ, a German freighter bound for Hamburg, and ended up in Aberdeen, Scotland. From there, he made his way to London, where he worked as a boxer and slapstick performer in Belle Davis's Freedmen Piccadillys, an African-American entertainment troupe. In 1913, Bullard went to France for a boxing match. Settling in Paris, he became so comfortable with French customs that he decided to make a home there. He later wrote, It seemed to me that French democracy influenced the minds of both Black and white Americans there and helped us all act like brothers. After World War I had begun in the summer of 1914, Bullard enlisted in the French Foreign Legion. While serving with the 170th Infantry Regiment, Bullard fought in the Battle of Verdun, where he was wounded seriously. He was taken from the battlefield and sent to Lyon to recuperate. While on leave in Paris, Bullard bet a friend $2,000 that despite his color, he could enlist in the French Flying Service. Bullard's determination paid off, and in November 1916, he entered the Aeronautique Militaire. Bullard began flight training at Tours in 1916 and received his wings in May of 1917. He was first assigned to Escadrille Spa 93 and then Escadrille Spa 85 in September 1917, where he remained until he left the Aeronautic Militaire. During his flying days, Bullard is said to have had an insignia on his Spod 7C1 that portrayed a heart with a dagger running through it and the slogan, All Blood Runs Red. Reportedly, Bullard flew with the mascot, a rhesus monkey named Jimmy. After the United States entered the war in 1917, Bullard attempted to join the U.S. Air Service, but he was not accepted, ostensibly because he was an enlisted man and the Air Service required pilots to be officers and hold at least the rank of first lieutenant. In actuality, he was rejected because of the racial prejudice that existed in the American military during that time. Bullard returned to the Aeronautique Militaire, but he was summarily removed after an apparent confrontation with a French officer. He returned to the 170th Infantry Regiment until his discharge in October 1919. After the war, Bullard remained in France, where he worked in a nightclub called Zelly's in the Montmartre district of Paris, owned a nightclub, Le Grand Duc, and an American-style bar, L'Escadrille, operated an athletic club, and married a Frenchwoman, Marcel Dustraumann. During this time, Bullard rubbed elbows with notables like Langston Hughes, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Josephine Baker. By the late 1930s, however, the clouds of war began to change Bullard's life dramatically. 
Even before World War II officially began in 1939, Bullard became involved in espionage activities against French fifth columnists who supported the Nazis. When war came, he enlisted as a machine gunner in the 51st Infantry Regiment and was severely wounded by an exploding artillery shell. Fearing capture by the Nazis, he made his way to Spain, Portugal, and eventually the United States, settling in the Harlem district of New York City. After his arrival in New York, Bullard worked as a security guard and longshoreman. In the post-World War II years, Bullard took up the cause of civil rights. In the summer of 1949, he was involved in an altercation with the police and a racist mob at a Paul Robeson concert in Peekskill, New York, in which he was beaten by police. Another incident involved a bus driver who ordered Bullard to sit in the back of the bus. These events left Bullard deeply disillusioned with the United States, and he returned to France, but was unable to resume his former life there. During his lifetime, the French showered Bullard with honors, and in 1954, he was one of three men chosen to relight the everlasting flame at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Paris. In October 1959, he was made a Knight of the Legion of Honor, the highest ranking order and decoration bestowed by France. It was the 15th decoration given to him by the French government. In the epilogue to his well-researched book, Eugene Bullard, Black Expatriate in Jazz Age Paris, Craig Lloyd points out the poignancy of Bullard's situation in the United States. The contrast between Eugene Bullard's unrewarding years of toil and trouble early and late in life in the United States and his quarter century of much heralded achievement in France illustrates dramatically the crippling disabilities imposed on the descendants of Americans of African ancestry. In 1992, the McDonnell Douglas Corporation donated to the National Air and Space Museum a bronze portrait head of Bullard created by Eddie Dixon, an African-American sculptor. This work is displayed in the museum's Legend, Memory, and the Great War in the Air Gallery. On September 14, 1994, Bullard was posthumously commissioned a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force. A display case in the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, honors him. Bullard died in New York City of stomach cancer on October 12, 1961, at the age of 66. He was buried with military honors in the French War Veterans section of Flushing Cemetery in the New York City borough of Queens. His friend, Louis Armstrong, is buried in the same cemetery. Hello everyone, my name is Adriana and I'm a member of the World Vision Church and Ministry Partnerships team. I'm so excited to get to introduce you to today's really special episode. I'm going to start with a verse from John chapter 17 verse 11 and this is Jesus during a prayer. That they may all be one, just as you Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The last year has truly exposed our need to be unified as a body, as a people, and as a church. Since the summer of 2020, it has been made clear just how far away from that we are. That's why I'm so glad that I've gotten to serve with a team of colleagues here and some external partners and friends of World Vision to bring an initiative to life called May We Be One, 
pastors pursuing racial justice. Through May We Be One, we've invited church leaders and pastors from all across the country to participate in learning and conversation about racism in the church in America. Some of the people that are have been coming together are really new to these types of discussions and topics, while there are others who have been doing this kind of work for a really, really long time and have been lonely and carrying the burden. Those who have joined us in this space have formed community. They break out into groups and um, and have discussions to reflect on the sessions and the different teachings all with the hope that they can dismantle racism and change the landscape of the church. We believe that this was a once in a generation moment and opportunity and that we as the church couldn't let it pass. Today, you get to listen in on one of the sessions. The discussion is led by Reverend Dr. Ephraim Smith, who's one of the World Vision friends who joined us as a leader at the beginning of this initiative. He brought together friends of his, um, Jamar Tisby and Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson, and they have a discussion and conversation that we kind of get to be the, a fly on the wall for talking about the gift of the Black church to conversations of unity and justice. This has been such a special time for us when we started last year bringing pastors together because we brought prolific voices that are leading the way toward racial justice in academic, pastoral, and community organizing settings. And you're gonna see that expertise on display in this conversation. It's a special time during Black History Month to, to get to listen in and to learn from them. We wanted to share this important word with you today on Beyond the Walls, and we pray that it blesses you and it would soften your heart and expand your mind. Enjoy. I hope that people receive the invitation uh, into this conversation. I I'm fortunate that I get to uh, facilitate, be a part of a conversation with two friends, with two wonderful, wonderful, powerful um, voices. And those are the voices of Jamar Tisby and Natasha Sinstruck Robinson. And uh, they are about to join me right now as uh, I get to have this awesome conversation uh, with both of them. And so uh, I, I want to kind of set the tone of what this conversation uh, will be like. Uh, so if you're African-American, you're going to get this from, from the very beginning. If not, just look, just sit back and receive the blessing. That, that, that's what I want to say. I'm, I'm humbly saying that. Receive the blessing. I'm saying that not because of who I am individually, but because as a product of the African-American church, I really do believe, I, I've preached about this, I've written about this, uh, that the Black church, the Black Christian experience is a gift to the entire body of Christ. Uh, of course, the Black church uh, in the United States of America, uh, the Black Christian experience has been an empowering, uh, 
liberating, transformative experience for African-Americans. But Black ecclesiology, Black theology, the Black Christian experience is a gift to the entire body of Christ if the entire body of Christ would receive it, especially in a moment like this. So I can't think of two better people to have this conversation with than my sister, Natasha Sinstruck Robinson, and my brother, Jamar Tisby. And let me just say a little bit about these two incredible, powerful, anointed voices. Natasha Sinstruck Robinson currently is living on uh, the eastern part of the United States of America. She is a product of the South. She has served this nation through the military. Uh, she is, a, is an author. Uh, I had a chance to uh, write the foreword of one of her books, uh, a book on mentoring and discipleship. And she also has a book, uh, A Sojourner's Truth. We're going to get to that. And so she's an author. She's a speaker. She is working on her doctorate, but she's already walking in scholarly footsteps right now. So uh, that's Natasha. Jamar Tisby, oh, oh my goodness, this, this, you talk about a modern version of the Black Renaissance. That is Jamar Tisby. Jamar Tisby is an author. He's working on a PhD at the University of Mississippi. And uh, he studies history, but especially the intersection of, of church history and racialized history in the United States of America. He is an author as well, Color of Compromise. If you don't have that on your bookshelf, you better let the Lord bless you as soon as possible. And he's got a new book out, uh, but I, and you need to get that one too. Just read the books in the right order is what I'm gonna tell you. We're gonna have a conversation like we're at the barbershop, like we're at the beauty salon on a Saturday afternoon. And, and we're, we're gonna have an unashamedly courageous, wonderful, Black Christian conversation, since that's who we are. So Natasha, I want to start with you, my, my dear sister. Um, you wrote uh, in A Sojourner's Truth, the importance of a narrative of truth, of telling the story the way it should be told. And, and so what, what story should we be sharing as Black Christians in this moment that we find ourselves in? What, what are some of the key elements that's important in the truth of our story that the broader body of Christ needs to hear and receive? Yeah, I think uh, an important thing for, for Black people, Black Christians in particular, is that a lot of our Christian faith is rooted in suffering. Um, that is not the beginning or end of our story, but it's certainly uh, a lot of the sauce, I would say, right, of our story. And so when I think about the Black church, the Black Christian experience, a lot of that is rooted um, for us in America 
in the Exodus narrative. So as black people, when we think about the hundreds of years that our people have been in slavery in this country, you know, part of the motivation, and I think about this all the time, that we have ancestors that were born into and died in slavery and held on to faith, but from a Jesus that the oppressor was giving them and saying that that was their birthright to be in that place. And yet they held on to a faith of a different Jesus, right? And that faith of a different Jesus was rooted in not the words that they were given by the oppressor, but in the words that they were told for those who were able to read and hear the fuller story going all the way back to the Exodus narrative. And the premise of it was this. If God was able to deliver the Israelites out of 400 years of slavery, then he most certainly is able to deliver us. And if God is delayed in that deliverance, it's not because he can't. It's not because he can't, because God surely is able, as our older elders would say, right? God is able to do it. And so they held on to a hope and a promise for God's deliverance, even when they were in bondage. And that is a, a very strong foundation of the Black church and the Black Christian experience. So I think it's important to start there from a theological perspective. Jamar, in your book, uh, Color of Compromise, uh, what I really appreciate is you you tell um, a beautiful uh, yet horrific, uh, truthful uh, just picture. You you provide this picture of the journey of African Americans in the United States of America. You uh, no one book can tell the whole story, but you you give us a picture of the journey of Black Christians. Uh, of of our striving to be uh, those made in the image of God too, but yet getting um, backlash from our white brothers and sisters uh, who considered themselves Christians as well at the time, but yet uh, we're we're the sufferers, we're we're the oppressed, but yet still holding out hope for beloved community. So uh, could you just as you I mean, you wrote the book, so uh, just share a little more about why it's so important for us not to just receive the portion of Dr. King's message that says, you know, to, to not judge people by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. You just don't present this, this beautiful, safe depiction of the Black Christian experience. You present it in a holistic manner that that causes uh, some conviction and and hopefully some some disturbance in the souls of people. Why is it important for people to receive the broader, fuller ex experience that is the Black Christian experience? My good friend, Dr. Christina Edmondson, put it this way: that these are things that we know as Black people affectively, but now we know them historically. So I think all of us black folks have a sense um, that racism is a problem in the present, but also a very old and historic problem too. And we can name certain names and events and whatnot, but uh, a book like The Color of Compromise, which is a historical survey, puts names, dates, faces, places to the kind of oppression that we have experienced, also the resistance, that we have put up against that uh, oppression. And when you know those details, when you know the specifics of 
Mary Turner, who was eight months pregnant when she was lynched. When you know the specifics of, uh, you know, the, the theological defenses that white folks were putting up for slavery, and you can read the actual sermon or the actual line, that strikes you different. And this book arose out of many different places, but one of it was sort of a very emotional place because I was doing my coursework in uh, the PhD program, and you read dozens and dozens of books on history. And no matter what the topic was, it could have been labor history, it could have been gender history, it could have been social or cultural history of some sort. If Christians and race came up, white Christians were almost invariably on the wrong side of justice. And to the extent that these books talked about race, it was not in any sense better than you would imagine. It was always, without exception, worse than you would imagine when it comes to racism, when it comes to white supremacy, when it comes to discrimination. And so for me, there was a frustration, there was an anger, there was a grief, and I just had this very simple idea that it, if it had affected me, if reading this history had affected me so profoundly, and what it did was not just in, evoke these feelings, but it evoked a sense of wanting to do something about it, then perhaps it would do the same thing for others, evoke these strong feelings and provoke a response toward racial justice. In a moment like this, and, and I've, I've been wrestling with this for a while now. I, I've probably been wrestling with it for years, but I think in 2020 is when it really hit me, this idea that the best gift I can give to the, the broader body of Christ is to be uh, my full Black Christian self. Dr. Walter McRae, who's the president of the National Association of Black Evangelicals, uh, wrote a book, uh, Pro-Black, Pro-Christ, Pro-Cross. And, uh, and, and what he, the, the book is about the development, the journey of, of Black evangelicalism, uh, uh, the development of the, the National Association of Black Evangelicals. But what really hit me when I read that book was the ways in which navigating the broader body of Christ, especially when I, I navigate white evangelical spaces, a feeling like I, got to, I have to pull back on my Black Christian self. Because my Black Christian self, if, if I display uh, the fullness of my Black Christian self, oh, that's, that's intimidating. That, that, am I going to be called an angry Black man? Am, am I going to be seen as, as someone not helpful? Uh, and, but I'm going, no, I, the, the worst gift uh, a Black Christian can give to the body of Christ is an assimilated self, uh, a, a, a false self. Maybe I'm getting a little bit into W.E.B. Du Bois right now. That, that, that double consciousness, the, the two souls issue. And so, uh, Natasha, uh, for you, on, on one hand, how do you feel about what I'm saying? And, and do you feel liberated in that? Or, or would you say, uh, Brother Ephraim, they don't want my full black sister self <laughs> on display. Uh, how, how would you receive the, the, this thought I'm wrestling with? Yeah, well, if we tell the truth, 
the the thing that's in a lot of these spaces worse than being an angry black man is being an angry black woman, right? Um, and I think that narrative, that label is one of silencing and it's intentional. And so I think when we talk about stories and presence and embodiment, it's important that we consider what the real issue is, what the real story is, and then what's the narrative. And so um, we talk about this a lot in, in my DMIM program. I, I was a student of Dr. Sutran Ra before I got into his DMIM program, but I'm really a student of him now. And so we talk about, you know, these stories and narratives. And what I like to say is that a story is about what happens. You know, it's, just, it's what you say about what happens. But the narrative, in my opinion, is really like the story about the story. So if I go back to the Exodus narrative, right, and and the, the story is uh, the Hebrews are crying out to God. The Israelites are crying out to God because of their enslavement. God hears their cries. God calls Moses. Moses is going to lead them out of their enslavement. That's the story. But the one who ends up in the position of power, which is Pharaoh, when Moses goes to him to first ask for the deliverance of the liberation of these people, Pharaoh crafts a narrative. And mindful, the first narrative that was crafted was the one to put them in slave. It was about his own issues, his own insecurities, his own projections that if people come and fight against us, then these people that have grown so large in number, they're going to turn against us. And to prevent that, let's enslave them. So that's the first narrative. Now they're enslaved and Moses says, hey, let these people go. And then the narrative that Pharaoh crafts is, well, the reason they want to go is because they're lazy. Right? So that's the narrative. That's the story about the story. And I think so often people who are marginalized or oppressed, um, women, people of color, when we're in these spaces where we do not have power a lot of times, then the people in positions of power are able to craft narratives about us. And the unfortunate thing is sometimes for a sake of survival, we adjust, you know, we accommodate, we silence ourselves because we want to be accepted in that space. And again, sometimes it's just a matter of survival. It is a natural inclination that I don't want to die out here on the battlefield. We know what that looks like. And to avoid that imminent death, I'm going to make adjustments to make the person who's naming me to make the person who's telling the story about my life, which may or may not be true, more comfortable so that I can protect my own self, my loved ones, my children, speaking from a perspective of a woman, right? My children, because they will go after my children too. And my children are not able to defend themselves. So as a black woman, as a black mother, as a matriarch, as a mother of a community, I have a responsibility to decide how I show up, where I show up, when I show up, and how I'm going to create spaces of safety because I love my people and I love my children. Yeah. Well, you're, you're unpacking in the words you shared, Natasha, uh, one of the significant blessings when I say that uh, the Black church, Black theology uh, is a blessing, is a gift to the entire body of Christ if it would receive it. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this segue to go over to Jamar. Um, the reason 
I say this deal about the black church, the black Christian experience being a gift is because the black Christian experience in the United States specifically is so close to the story of the people of God in the Bible. But when you're reading the Bible, the majority of the time, the people of God are not depicted in the Bible as a privileged, powerful, empire-leading people. For the majority of the time, the people of God, the Israelites, the Hebrews, then the followers of the way in the New Testament are an exiled, enslaved, oppressed, marginalized people. And, it, and so if we're studying Christianity in the United States of America, primarily from institutions and systems of power. So if we're, so if we're, if we're interpreting uh, uh, the Bible based on leading powerful Christian institutions only, then I'm going, how can we tell the story well of exiled, enslaved, marginalized, suffering, oppressed people in the Bible? J Jamar, what, what, what are you thinking about what, what I'm cooking up here? Oh, I mean, you, you, you answered the question. You know, we cannot tell the story well. It is, it, is, it is a testament to the power of the stronghold of white supremacy that it has blinded so many people to the very obvious and evident truths of the Bible. Uh, Catholics call it the preferential option for the poor. Uh, Howard Thurman called it uh, Jesus and the disinherited, right? It is a, 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 a very clear theme, one of, one of the themes throughout all of Scripture, um, that God has God's eye on the sparrow. You know what I'm saying? On the delicate, on the weak, on the wind tossed about in the storms of life. I was reading, um, reading through Psalms, and uh, Psalm 12 says, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long. And this is why I give honor to the black church. Uh, I, I, uh, I pastor uh, an urban multi-ethnic church, but I'm a product of the black church. So just give me just a minute to give my black church shout out because I'm originally licensed and ordained in the National Baptist Convention USA. The whole body of Christ, matter of fact, not just the whole body of Christ, the United States of America should be grateful because the reason there wasn't an all-out, just rebellious, violent race war from African-Americans, the reason why African-Americans have not totally lost their mind, the reason why we are uh, a diverse, uh, broad, glorious people is because of the Black church, the Black church. And because I... I I'm going to be off this soapbox in just a second because there, you know, I, I talk to some in evangelical circles and they'll say to me, you know, uh, shouldn't we focus on uh, 
there are not enough black men in the homes raising their kids. Shouldn't we talk about the loss of values in the black community? And I said, you know, I want to ask you, when slavery was over, where was the mass therapy that black people were given? If we took all white people and at the beginning of the nation, we said, you can't get married. We're going to take your kids from you when you have a baby. We, we're going to create the most inhumane, oppressive conditions you could ever put upon human beings. Then outside of slavery, you know, pretend that there's going to be some semblance of now you can own land, now you can build families, but then tear that apart through systemic racism, Jim Crow segregation, and then one generation out of Jim Crow segregation go, what's wrong with your families? Where are your values? Please. It, it is a miracle. Every time, I'm saying this, every time you walk down the street and you see a black family, if you see a black father mother, husband, and wife with their kids walking through a grocery store, you should pause and say, thank God, praise God, in spite of, in spite of slavery, in spite of domestic terrorism through white supremacy, in spite of Jim Crow segregation, in spite of white flight, in spite of businesses leaving Black communities, in spite of Christian... Evangelical Christians building Christian schools outside, away from communities of color, and putting a tuition price tag that urban under-resourced Black people can't afford to pay. In spite of all that, Black people still out here surviving, still out here worshiping God, lifting our hands, singing hymns, praying, preaching, getting PhDs. See, I told you, we talking like we at the barbershop in the beauty salon. This is This is... A raw conversation, man. Lord, have mercy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Why don't we go yes. all the way in and just tell the truth and shame the devil today? Um, I, you know, I think it's really important because we talk about you know pastors pursuing racial justice, and 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 to pursue racial justice, I said before, I will say again, we have to be willing to tell the truth. And that's what we're doing today. We're telling the truth. And this is a truth that we don't want just hashtags and lights and, and whatever. Like, this is a truth to take back to your people, right? This is a truth to take back to your people for you and your people to wrestle with because to own up to maybe the narratives I'm telling, maybe the stories I'm telling, maybe the theology I'm employing, maybe um, the leadership I'm supporting, maybe, just maybe, there's some gaps in there. Maybe there's um, some, some, some lies in there. Maybe there's some partial truths in there. And, and, and I think we need to do that. And we're not going to be able to do that if we're not willing to sit and listen to the different perspectives and the, 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 the receipts, if you will, right? The, the receipts that we have historically, socially, personally, experientially in community and having studied this same good book that we have for what we're seeing here about um, the Black church and the Black experience and the stories we tell about Black people and Black men and Black women and Black children. 
right? Because the, the reality is when we start talking about, you know, Jamar, you mentioned uh, white supremacy. The, the truth is that people don't always own up to that. It requires a sacrifice of black intelligence and black beauty and black spirituality that some people call black magic and black, you know, uh, black families and, 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 and a, a healthy masculinity from black men and black women not being sexualized. Like, like that narrative of we are right and we get to tell the story about everybody else requires a different crafting of language about blackness and black people and all the other people in co of color get in line along the spectrum of the white is right and black is bad so that they can survive too. And until we deal with the truth of that, we're not going to be leaders and pastors that pursue racial justice. Natasha, what you were just saying is so helpful to me in, in this conversation. And where, where I want to move to next is just why it's important for African-American Christians to not lose their connectedness to the African-American church, to African-American theology, uh, to, our, to our collective journey as African-American Christians. And the reason this is important, especially if you are doing ministry as an African-American Christian in a space that is not predominantly African-American. Again, I started this conversation by saying the best gift that black Christians can give to the broader body of Christ is our black Christian self, not an assimilated self, but our black Christian self. And, and, and I know there's risk in that. I, um, my first experience in evangelicalism in predominantly white evangelicalism is I was talking to a youth pastor of a very large church. And I was saying to him, uh, he happened to be white and evangelical. I was saying to him that I felt a call to youth ministry and I wanted to be a youth pastor in an African-American church. Because I grew up in an African-American church that blessed me, but, but the church didn't have a full-time youth pastor on staff, didn't have you know all these funded programs. And I saw in the white church, I saw, churches that had youth pastors on paid staff with budgets. And I was like, man, I, I want to bring that to the black church contextualized. So I told this pastor, I felt called to be a youth pastor. And he said, well, you should come on staff with me. You can intern and then we'll see what happens. And I said, well, I feel called to the black church. And this is what he said to me. Well, you're going to have to decide if you're called to a black thing or if you're called to a kingdom thing. And so for me, that, that conversation and my experience, have I, have I had some blessed experiences in evangelicalism? Sure I have. But I've had a lot of experiences where I understood the subordination of black Christianity within evangelicalism. Of, of the black church being presented as less than. I've read books by reformed theologians that basically said that in the white evangelical church is theology, but in the black church is emotionalism, is, is, is kind of a soul uh, dynamic 
as it was just almost like in the black church, we don't have theology. We just shout and dance and sing and hoop and get caught up in the spirit. That, that's mm-hmm. what we do in the black church. But then when we decide that we want to be sound theologians, now mm-hmm. it's time to find a good, predominantly white, evangelical or mainline institution. So now we can go and become scholars. Mm. And let me, let, me, let me respond to that because I think uh, two things I want to say to that. One is I've heard some version of that question or commentary before. And my thing is that is never or rarely, I would say never, but rarely um, thrown back to our white brothers and sisters. Like in what ways might your faith or your theology be in conflict with white power? a white, you know, supremacy, right? These things that we don't, we don't talk about because the assumption is that if you think this way and you vote this way and you support this type of leadership, then you're right about things. And that's the thing I'm asking us to challenge. And I think from the emotionalism perspective, this is very important too, because again, I'm looking at this from a, from a cross section of being black, but also being a woman, right? And so there's this whole idea of, you know, women sometimes being uh, more emotional and less theological, like we don't know what's going on. And somehow that, even when we're responding in our motion, that that is not a gift to the church, right? And so one of the things I'm I'm, I'm working on right now, I'm working on a project that's going to come out next year with women of color about um, devotions and psalms of lament around Psalm 37. And when this pandemic first hit, um, I was really drawn to the book of Jeremiah. And so I started praying and confessing like through Jeremiah, because I'm like, God is clearly trying to get our attention. Like God is clearly trying to get us to repent about some things. And there's a lot that Jeremiah speaks and names specifically that needs repentance and sin. So I started confessing our way on through. And it's a corporate confession. Because again, we are communal people and we forget this sometimes in the Western church. But we are communal people. It's not just about Natasha and her individual sins. All of us have sinned and fall short of glory of God. And when we are screwed up, that sin reverberates and impacts a lot of people. And we're seeing that even today. And so I was just confessing all the things. Came upon Jeremiah 9, um, chapter 9. And I'm going to share this with you, just a few verses for whoever taking notes and putting it in the box. Jeremiah 9, and I think this is very applicable to what you're saying here, uh, Reverend Dr. Smith, is that Jeremiah 9, 17 and 18, and I'm going to also read 20 and 21. 17 and 18 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now, call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. So these women are crying and wailing. Some people are saying emotional, but Jeremiah says it's a skill. It's not just them being emotional, that they have suffered and they have learned how to cry out to God to lament because of the atrocities and the sin that has happened among them. That's what he says. But then he goes on to say in verse 20, now women hear the word of the Lord. He's given instruction to the, to the women now. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. So the God of generations, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, the first wife, right? That God is saying, you must teach the generations so they don't forget, so they remember all the ways that God has continued to show up for them when they were suffering, 
when they were in exile, right? Don't let them forget. So you teach your children how to do this. So you teach your daughters how to do it. And, what, and, and notice the women are leading the way here. The women are leading the way. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. So they're going to teach their daughters. Then they're going to teach the community. Now watch this. And this is the word for us today. Because death has climbed in through our windows. It has entered our fortresses. It has cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. And that about brings me to tears. Because every time I see a black man in the street, shot in the street. I don't care who's holding the trigger. Every time a black person, a black man goes to jail, right? Every time a black child is, is, is uh, victimized or harmed, every time a black woman is raped, every time, every time we know, black women know about our children being in the streets and about our men being cut off from the public sphere. And not all of that is their fault. Some of that is how the system is set up for them to fail because their lives are not valued. And Black women have been suffering in that way. And Black women have been willing out in that way. And that is not just us responding to emotion. That is us practicing a spiritual discipline. That is us being present with the Lord. That is our source of survival. And that is the thing that has carried us. You are so right. The, this is the gift. The gift of the Black Christian experience to the whole. Our wails are a gift. Our cries are a gift. Our tears are a gift. The emotion is a part of the ecclesiology because the people of God wailed in the Bible. The people of God shouted. See, this is the funny thing. People, I think there's some Christians that believe when Jesus was being whipped in the public square that he didn't make no noise. That's, that, that, that's what made me mad about the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's version. I need a Jesus who hollers. I think Jesus hollered when he was beaten. I think when the nails went in his hands and the nails went in his feet, he hollered from Calvary. When he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He wailed from the cross. And the whales from slavery and the whales from lynching trees and the whales from street corners, the whales, the cries, the blood crying from the ground. This is part of our experience. And it's a gift that can bring healing and strength and clarity and direction to the entire body of Christ. Thank you for joining us this week, friends. We hope you're enjoying this Black History Month while you're moving your feet. As always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. We'll see you next week.